today's guest is podcast rock star Josh Toll of King & Spaulding. Josh spoke to us from our recording studio in Washington, D.C., where he's also based. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Josh. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion last time, so it's a pleasure to be back. Awesome. So we're going to just jump right in for people who have missed the last episode. Could you give us a quick overview of King & Spaulding and what you do? Right, so I'm very fortunate to have the role of pro bono partner at King & Spaulding. I've been leading our pro bono program for about five years now, and I'm responsible for leadership of our pro bono program firm-wide. Like many firms, our pro bono program, our policy, I should say, is based on the model PBI definition, so thank you for that. Um, Basically, our pro bono program boils down to representing people of limited means, um, taking on civil rights matters, and helping nonprofits that are on the ground, helping people. And we really do all three of those things. It's a, obviously a very um, broad net. And we have a particular emphasis at King & Spalding on helping the most vulnerable members of our society. Um, that may be victims of domestic violence, who, as you know, are often facing severe power inequalities. It may be disabled veterans. I want to talk about one of those matters in a few minutes or child immigrants um, who are very much in the news right now. As you know, just to name a few examples. Great. So you were just talking about people who need your help. And in our previous discussion, we talked about your passion for the Clemency Project. And recently you worked with the project to defend Darren Perkins, who you helped win Clemency for just a month ago. It was very recent. Could you tell us about the case and your experience? Yeah, thanks for asking. I'm really um, happy and proud of my work um, on Mr. Perkins' case. It was a very rewarding matter. I want to recognize the efforts of my co-counsel, um, Professor Jane N. Murray of University of Minnesota Law School, who first brought to my, uh, the case to my attention. Um, and this is a good example of the power of relationships in the sense that I met Professor Murray during the earlier Clemency Project 2014, and we had gotten to know each other. She had helped me with some of those matters, and we kept in touch. And she um, brought this matter to my attention. And, you know, this case is really about, in addition to relationships, really about the power of persistence. Um, You know, as a pro bono lawyer, um, your mantra really has to be never give up. And I think this case really shows that principle. You know, you always have to be brainstorming different legal theories and avenues. And when one avenue gets shut down, you have to be ready to pursue another. And in this case, um, prior to me getting involved, Professor Murray represented Mr. Perkins in his clemency application. And she really felt like, and I agree, that he had a strong clemency case. But unfortunately, he was denied clemency from President Obama. And as you know, the uh, clemency and pardon power very much in the news right now. And as I'm sure you also know, um, unlike a court decision, they don't have to give you a reason when they turn you down. So you just get a no. Um, And so Mr. Perkins' clemency application was denied with no explanation. And at that point, to Professor Murray's credit, she really didn't give up. She contacted me and said, hey, let's see if we can get this done in the courts. And when I heard about Darren's background and how deserving he was of relief, of course, I was very eager to get involved. Um, I probably talked about this last time, but I'm a former public defender. So these types of cases are very near and dear to my heart. And um, this case was a little bit, I would say, even more challenging than normal because Um, Darren had two sentences, a federal life sentence, which is life without parole, as well as a D.C. sentence in Superior Court, um, just down the street, and that was 18 years consecutive to um, his life sentence. And if that sounds daunting, it really was, but we, of course, decided to attack it one sentence at a time. 
Um, and thankfully, we were able to get relief in federal court based on retroactive changes to the sentencing guidelines. And that, um, based on those changes, we were able to get the sentence changed from life to 360 months. And that does sound like a lot. However, Darren had already done 26 years, which based on credit for good time served is the equivalent of 30 years. So that sentence was basically complete. But the D.C. sentence was a lot trickier because unlike um, with the federal sentence, there was no obvious way for us to get into court. The time to file a motion to alter the sentence had passed years ago, so we were untimely. But, you know, it's funny how life works. When you just identify a goal and keep fighting, doors really do have a way of opening, and that happened in this case. We decided to file an out-of-time motion to amend and the court of appeal, DC Court of Appeals had already held, thankfully, that the deadline for that type of motion is not jurisdictional. However, it was an open question whether it was a mandatory claims processing rule, meaning that the judge has no discretion whether to uphold it, or um, a permissive rule, and meaning that the judge could waive it um, if he so choose, chose. And in this case, the U.S. Attorney's Office initially objected uh, on timeliness grounds, so we were too late. But Professor Murray and myself engaged in a sustained negotiation with the U.S. Attorney's Office. And when it came time to go to court, we weren't sure what was going to happen. We were ready to argue the motion, ready to argue the timeliness point. But we were very pleased to find that the U.S. Attorney's Office had changed their position. And our advocacy had really paid off. And to their credit, the U.S. Attorney's Office really took a holistic view of Mr. Perkins's file. And I think they were influenced by many factors but most especially his excellent disciplinary record over 26 years, which really speaks volumes. He really had turned his life around, um, and that really shone through. And so we were really happy to see that the U.S. Attorney's Office withdrew their objection, and they agreed to reduce Mr. Perkins's sentence to just 16 months. So we went from 18 years to 16 months, which was an incredible reduction. But the most rewarding thing was all of Darren's family who came to court that day. He had about 10 relatives who came to court, including two of his children. And they were so happy when we let them know that the judge was gonna agree and, and grant Mr. Perkins relief. Uh, many of them were in tears. And it really brought it home for me and for Professor Murray, just how rewarding this work was. And at this point, uh, Mr. Perkins is scheduled to be released at the beginning of December, so just a couple more months and we're really excited. That's amazing, 18 years to 16 months is uh, quite the jump. I watched the PBS NewsHour segment Yeah. Uh, with him. And, you did a great and, job. Yeah, it's funny because you're watching it at the end of that. It's like, he's still awaiting. It's like, not anymore. Yeah, and it's funny I need to update. Into this. I need to put a little blurb <laughs> on the end there. Right after that. So let's talk more about your involvement with the Clemency Project. What works well and what could have been approved from a pro bono volunteer and client operations standpoint? Right. So our work on the Clemency Project was really a highlight of our recent pro bono program. We had 40 clients as a firm and about 60 King & Spalding lawyers across almost all of our U.S. offices and actually a couple of international offices were involved. So we really put together a great team and we were able to get clemency for 12 of our clients, which we're very proud of. And almost all 12 were serving life without parole in the federal system prior to our our work, and in two other cases, we obtained relief in the courts, sort of like in Mr. Perkins's case, that function is the equivalent of clemency. So we were able to really get relief for a very high proportion of our clients, which we're really happy about. And I have to say, um, before addressing the program more generally, 
just want to take a slight detour and just say that hearing our clients' stories were so powerful. Really, um, you know, different experiences, but what they had in common was that they really were low-level offenders, and they really were caught in the middle of these excessively harsh sentencing schemes, statutes, and federal sentencing guidelines, which, of course, as I said, have since been changed. But hearing their stories were just so compelling and really so rewarding. And I have to say also that looking back on it, I think the project has to be seen as a really a massive success. Um, my understanding, you know, obviously so many firms got involved, solo practitioners. Well over 2,000 petitions were submitted as part of the project overall. And when you consider that, I think about President Obama granted about 1,700 petitions as part of Clemency Project 2014. So that shows you what a major role this project played. Um, and really a huge shout out to the organizers, ACLU, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, ABA, NACDL, um, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, Federal Defenders. I would totally be remiss if I didn't mention them and all of the great work that they did. Um, and so as far as what worked and what didn't work or what could have been changed, like any project, I think that there were some technical snafus early on, you know, to be expected for a project of this size, but to their credit, the organizers had a technical person. They really ironed out the difficulties. Um, I would say what worked well, the training was really helpful. I think in any type of massive project like this, it's really important to get a standardized training so everyone's kind of working from the same understanding. And unlike me, you know, a former public defender, I was able to get a lot of my colleagues involved who had no prior criminal law experience and no prior experience, of course, dealing with the federal sentencing guidelines, which, as you know, are very technical. So the training was extremely helpful. You know, we had corporate lawyers that weren't even litigators get involved, and the training allowed them to get up to speed. And also on the, um, in the area of what worked well, the database, the Clemency Project database worked very well. I think when you're piloting, again, such a massive project, having a centralized database is so important. It allowed us to all collaborate in a secure and efficient way. And the database was how you sort of took the case from start to finish. And it was very um, well kind of thought out and organized so, and how all the training materials, everything was in one place. So that was extremely helpful. As far as what could have worked, been improved or worked out, what could have been done a little bit differently? I honestly think that most of the challenges were really not the fault of the organizers at all, but were more inherent in clemency work generally. Um, for example, many of these were really old cases, old convictions, old sentences. A lot of the court records weren't on PACER, they weren't online. My colleagues and myself had to do a lot of digging. And you'd be amazed how many times we would contact the original lawyer uh, and they would say, oh, I don't have those files anymore. Meanwhile, your client's serving a life sentence. You think you might want to keep those documents around. Um, and so we had a lot of obstacles in terms of gathering records, which you really need to be able to conduct the analysis. I think the other, another challenging aspect was just, again, because it's, it's not a court system, it could sometimes feel like a bit of a black box. You do all this work, you submit your application to the Office of the pardon attorney, and then it could just sit there and there's really no way to move it forward and you're just kind of playing a waiting game and that part was difficult. 
And I think the other related aspect to that was that with clemency work, there's not necessarily a deadline. You know, had this been a, a court situation, normally you have a deadline. With clemency work, it was sort of like, you know, get this in as quickly as possible. And so you have that pressure of, um, you know, I have to submit this as soon as possible. And of course, all of my pro bono lawyers are balancing many things. And so it was just not really knowing when it's due. And you obviously didn't want to wait until the last day of Obama's term, because then he's going to be gone. So you knew you had to get it in as quickly as possible. But given all these difficulties, it was sometimes hard to get all the records. And then it was just like a lot of pressure to get it in without a real firm deadline. But we, we navigated the all of these various hurdles. And like I said, it was really a great experience. I never thought about the records thing, but that's totally true because as much time's passed, it's not getting the records. It's like even the way things were done and how reliable it was. Yeah, I never thought of that. So that must have been a challenge. It was, but it was actually kind of fun. You're a bit like an archaeologist going, going back <laughs> in history and excavating various records. And sometimes you would get a case and then there would be, you know, one of the convictions that might be for something that could be a disqualifying qualifying factor so then you have to sort of dig into that conviction and it was yeah it was but it was it was really really fun can you update us on any recent projects or cases the firm is working on since we last chatted absolutely i have a few uh they'd like to talk about uh, that i think are really exciting and innovative in their own ways i'm happy to report that we have become involved in an innovative project in atlanta as you probably know, Atlanta is the home of our biggest office where King & Spalding started, and I, of course, spend a lot of time there. Um, we partner with Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation, one of our main pro bono partners. I've seen them at your uh, conference many times. And um, Marty Ellen is their director, and Michael Lucas is their deputy director, and I just want to uh, throw a shout-out to those guys because they're such a pleasure to work with, and they do such a great job. And they decided to start a new project about a year ago called Standing With Our Neighbors. Um, and it's really innovative in a couple of different ways and we're really pleased to be part of it. The main concept is rather than asking our pro bono clients from underserved areas to come to us, you know, in Midtown Atlanta, instead we wanna to go to them. We wanna send our lawyers to their neighborhoods to actually get on the ground in these communities to really see what's going on with their own eyes and to really kind of fight the fight in the trenches as it were. And the second aspect is that they really thought holistically, AVLF, about some of the problems in some of these underserved communities. And they spoke to a lot of people. They reviewed a lot of data. And what they realized is that housing conditions are a huge problem in a lot of these Atlanta neighborhoods. And what was happening is that the conditions in many of these units were so bad that many of the kids living there were getting sick. For example, if they had asthma, that was getting exacerbated and they were missing school and then their educational performance suffered and then it became this whole spiral. And so AVLF realized if we can attack it here, if we can actually improve these conditions, which were far below the housing code minimums, we can really have a lot of related benefits and kind of try to break the cycle. And they were able to put together a coalition of law firms and corporate partners for example, Home Depot or donating dehumidifiers that some of these units really needed. And um, 
we got involved um, along with some other big law firms in Atlanta, and we adopted an elementary school. Um, AVLF got a grant to get a lawyer who spends time in the school, and they identify cases for us, which are, again, affirmative housing cases, and we file those cases, challenge those conditions. If it's the other way around and the landlord is filing for eviction despite massive housing code violations, we then contest the eviction and we assert the housing code violations as a defense. And we've been now getting involved by going to events at the school, really getting to know these families, because again, that's really part of this whole concept of standing with our neighbors, which I think is such a great idea. And my colleagues in Atlanta that have gotten involved have really loved this experience. And so we're really excited to see where that could go. Secondly, um, our LA office um, has partnered with Disability Rights California and Prison Law Office to file a lawsuit in federal court challenging the conditions of confinement in the Santa Barbara County Jail. I'm really proud of their efforts. I've gotten involved in this case as well because it's an interest, again, that's as a former public defender, conditions of confinement near and dear to my heart. And, you know, as a firm, we've really done a lot of civil rights work on behalf of prisoners. We're really proud of um, this work. We're really proud of standing up for the proposition that just because someone's incarcerated does not mean that they forfeit their basic human rights. And as you know, conditions of confinement is a real problem because since you don't have a right to an attorney in a civil matter, you really have no one that can bring that claim for you. You know, the prisoners in the Santa Barbara County Jail, many of whom, by the way, are awaiting trial and obviously innocent until proven guilty, they have public defenders and court-appointed lawyers in their criminal cases, but these lawyers really aren't permitted to bring a civil case to challenge the conditions. And so thankfully, um, Disability Rights California contacted us to get involved, and um, we, are, we filed a lawsuit. We're alleging inadequate medical care, inadequate mental health care, overuse of solitary confinement, and failure to accommodate inmates with disabilities. Um, and I've personally um, visited the jail myself and really seen with my own eyes how bad the conditions are. I was really shocked by what I saw. Um, thankfully, we are in very productive settlement discussions um, with the attorneys for the County of Santa Barbara. And our lawsuit has already made a difference because they've instituted some interim changes and we're really very hopeful and confident that this lawsuit will achieve some very broad and much needed reforms that are really going to operate as a sea change for the prisoners who are confined there. So I'm really proud of that work. Stay tuned on that one. And then the third thing I want to mention is I'm very proud of my colleagues in Atlanta and a few other offices for bringing an impact lawsuit on behalf of disabled veterans. Uh, my colleague, John Chandler, who's been a partner in our Atlanta office and is a veteran himself, he's recently retired, but he's still working on this case. Um, he's a fellow with the American College of Trial Lawyers, and he's teamed up with some lawyers at Williams and Connolly. And together, we have brought a lawsuit um, challenging the delays that disabled veterans face when appealing a denial of benefits. As you may know, the system is so backlogged and inefficient that on average, it takes six and a half years for a veteran to, who loses an application for disability benefits to challenge that denial by appealing the denial and then getting a decision on remand six and a half years. It's just intolerably too long. And obviously our disabled veterans deserve so much better than that. So I'm really proud of their efforts um, 
and you know, despite our hard work, we actually initially received a negative decision um, on the ground of, of the legal standard that the court should use when assessing the reason for the delay, which is what obviously the whole lawsuit boils down to. But thankfully, due to our sustained advocacy earlier this summer in June, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit reversed and uh, held that the lower court had used the improper standard for assessing the delay. And we believe that now that the proper standard's been clarified, that we think that the proper standard is much more advantageous to the principle that we're trying to advance. So we're very hopeful of getting a good outcome in that case. And I'm really proud of um, my team's hard work that put a lot of time and effort into that case. And so that's just a few of the recent matters that we've gotten involved in that I'm really excited about. Oh, those are all great projects. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Michael Lucas because he also was a podcast guest in the past. Oh, that's great. I got yeah. to listen to his podcast. Michael yeah, is great. It's a great one. Yeah, and it's definitely really important with all those housing cases because, I mean, we all talk about evicted all the time. So right, of course. we know that your chances of actually winning a case when you're represented is so much more because right. you're going against people who are represented. Absolutely. So we recently launched a new segment on the podcast called Tell Us About Your First Time. Could you tell us about your first or one of your early pro bono matters that you handled? Yes. Funny title. They say you never forget your first time. And of course, that's true when it comes to pro bono. Um, So for me, um, I want to talk about a DC bar pro bono center matter that I handled. Um, Big shout out to them. They do such a great job um, serving indigent member, indigent um, citizens, residents of D.C. We've worked with the Advocacy and Justice Clinic for almost 10 years. They do uh, landlord-tenant eviction defense, as well as family law, as well as um, disability. And my one of my very first matters was a disability matter on behalf of a woman who suffered from major depression as well as PTSD, stemming from being sexually abused as a child. Really awful situation. And this was not long after I joined King and Spalding. Still, you know, compared to now, very much of a junior lawyer, still kind of feeling my way along. And this was my one of my very first DC bar matters. And it was my first disability matter. And it was really challenging because the social security system is so Byzantine. It does so much it's a very technical and there's some bureaucracy that you have to be able to navigate. And thankfully, the DC bar cases come with excellent mentors and I had a mentor that was experienced and he was really helpful. But I, I still had to kind of figure it out myself to a large um, extent. And I had to gather voluminous medical records, analyze them, painstakingly go through massive social security regulations, uh, figure out um, if my client's condition fit the listings as they're referred to for major depression and PTSD. And of course, I had to prepare my client to testify, which was difficult because she had had some bad experiences prior in, in her life and was very hesitant, had a lot of difficulty, understandably, opening up about the things that she was dealing with. And of course, in a, in a social security disability hearing, you have to be very vulnerable and you have to tell the administrative law judge about your symptoms and limitations. I was able to gain her trust over time. Um, I, as with the veterans matters, I have to say these disability matters, it, it takes way too long to get a hearing. I think we waited for almost 18 months to get a hearing and some people wait for even longer. And there was a story in the New York Times, I think about six months ago, 
talking about how many people who unfortunately just pass away while waiting for a hearing. It, the, it's, there are delays throughout the system because there just need to be more administrative law judges. They're just overloaded. But the good news, uh, the silver lining, it's not good news, the silver lining of having to wait so long is that we had a lot of time to prepare. Um, and so that was really helpful. And I'll just never forget this client because she brought her prayer book with her to every single meeting with me and to the hearing itself, as well as her prayer beads. And they were really her source of comfort. And that really touched me. You know, I, I could see as lawyers sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're trained and we, you know, we go to law school, we go through various training programs and we love going to court. We, especially litigators, we love advocating. And it's easy to forget how difficult this process can be um, for clients who, like I said, have had some really negative interactions with the legal system before. And it was very difficult um, for this client, not only to, just to come to an office in Northwest DC, but the hearing itself was really challenging for her just to, to kind of just to get there and to open up and to answer the judge's questions because so much was on the line. I mean, this the, the, she really couldn't work and this was her only real chance at getting some type of regular income. And, you know, it was, it was also a little bit challenging for me because this was my first ALJ hearing and King and Spalding had never done this before. This was right after we got involved with the DC bar. And so there was no one I could ask at the firm, like, how does this work? And um, I, so I was kind of learning as I went along. And thankfully, um, my client did a really great job testifying. And based on her testimony and the medical records, which backed up her statements, we were able to get SSI benefits for her. Uh, which she's still getting. And in fact, I, I was reminded of this case. She called me the other day to check in, which was really nice. And she's doing really well. And it's a case I'll never forget. That's great. Yeah. You don't really think about what it's like for people going through it and how when you've been kind of going through something so traumatic to be optimistic and putting yourself through this is just hard because you have to also relive things as going through it yeah it was emotional and, and that's I think you could tell when she was testifying how credible her statements were because it was obviously a very emotional experience for her and I'm sure that those judges I'm sure see a lot of tears but I think my client was extremely credible and that no doubt helped a lot it's great to hear that she's doing well though yeah yeah it's great to keep in touch with her I'm so happy that she's doing well so what's on the horizon for the firm's pro bono program? Could you tell us about a couple new things in the works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've um, recently expanded our efforts um, in the area of immigration and asylum. We're really excited about that. Um, we've done immigration and asylum work for a long time. It's really been one of our signature areas. Uh, we find immigration and asylum matters to be so rewarding. And the colleague, I've worked on these matters myself. But my colleagues, um, we really work on these across all of our offices, and my colleagues who work on these matters just find them to be so interesting and such a great way of giving back. And um, we added to that a couple of years ago, probably about five years ago, we, we started working with KIND, Kids in Need of a Defense. I'm sure you know very well, a great organization. And so we, we added to our repertoire by taking on the cases of unaccompanied minors come to this country seeking a better life. And those cases have been really incredibly rewarding for us as well. 
I've personally worked with some of those clients and they have such amazing stories to tell. And they're really here again, seeking a better life. They're fleeing trauma, neglect, poverty, violence, abuse, uh, and they have such compelling stories. And so more recently, we've decided to expand even more because the need is so great right now. Um, we started working with recipients of, of DACA, Dreamers, um, and we're very proud of that work. Um, we have a lot of King & Spalding lawyers who have mobilized to assist DACA recipients with the renewal applications. Um, the, the program is being challenged, as I'm sure you know. It's a subject of lawsuits right now. So it's really important for the people who have DACA to try to renew so that they can get those renewal applications in and hopefully get DACA status for another two years, which will hopefully protect them until, with any luck, there can be further legislative change for the legislative solution to extend the program. And we were able to mobilize over 60 King & Spalding lawyers to help um, DACA recipients. And we've helped over 100 now in the, approximately the last month. So I'm really proud of that work, um, as well as equally proud of um, our efforts to help um, detained immigrants. Um, as you know, <clears throat> issues of family separation have been all over the news recently. And you know we see, of course, um, helping these immigrants who are stopped at the border as a natural extension, of course, of the asylum work that we've already been doing. And we were able to partner with Texas Civil Rights Project, which is a great organization. And we sent a team down to Texas a couple of weeks ago. And we sent a team of lawyers to the um, Port Isabel Detention Center, where we represent, we interviewed um, some detained clients who had been separated from their children and we're going to be representing them in their asylum cases and other immigration relief, as well as trying to help them reunify with their families. So we're really proud. It, really, it was really important to me as a leader of King & Spalding's program uh, to get involved um, and to extend our work in these couple of ways, the immigration work that we're already doing. So really proud of my colleagues uh, for doing that. Right, especially because uh, immigration in Atlanta is also kind of a different situation too so that's since king and spalding is in atlanta and such a big presence yes and that's, that's great. a really important part of our program we've done a lot of asylum work with um gain georgia asylum and immigration network which is a great organization great well uh thank you for talking to me today and it's so great to hear about all the good work you're doing thank you so much it's been a pleasure to be here new and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on apple podcasts and youtube be sure to subscribe if you haven't already please take a moment to leave an Apple podcast review. It is quick and easy to do. We appreciate the feedback and help us make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to pro bono at probonoinst.org. Looking forward to the BBI annual dinner? The dinner will be held at Gotham Hall in New York City on Thursday night, October 4th. More information can be found on our website, probonoinst.org, or call Danny Reed at 202-729-6691.